Hello, this is Erica Niesner and welcome to TLID's podcast for September. I'm here with the editor, John McConnell, to talk about September's issue. Let's start with the Infectious Diseases Surveillance article. It's a leading edge article and it's covering the issue of global disease management. Why is international surveillance important in addition to national surveillance? Well, of course, uh, infectious diseases don't respect borders. So uh, an international approach to infectious diseases is absolutely crucial so that we can control and, and prevent these diseases from, uh, from spreading worldwide. And there are different reporting systems that are described in the editorial among EU countries. Are there ways to standardise the methodology? Has that, that been proposed? Well, you'd think that the European Union would have some universal systems of, of reporting, but that's really not the case. Uh, the, the systems are, are quite different uh, across different countries. They tend to be somewhat better in Western Europe, somewhat worse in Eastern Europe. Different countries collect different sorts of data and they use different methodologies to collect data. So if you're looking at the incidence of prevalence in, in, in one country, then those figures may not necessarily be comparable with the incidence and prevalence of the same disease in another country because different methods have been used to collect that information. So what the European Union is trying to do, and this effort is now being coordinated by an organisation called the ECDC, or the European Centres for Disease Control, is to um, standardise the surveillance systems and the methodology so that we're all sort of singing from the same hymn sheet, really, and the, the figures do become comparable. Are there different roles associated with the different EU countries and the ECDC? Well, this is the, really the, the point of the editorial, is, um, is examining what the ECDC has achieved in the three years since it's been set up. So it has um, it has a fairly limited. The, the organisation is based in Stockholm in Sweden. It has a fairly limited budget. It, crucially, it doesn't have its own laboratories. So it relies upon national laboratories to uh, provide it with a lot of the data it needs. And this is one of the the sources of uh, criticism of the organisation is that it really doesn't have the resources that are comparable to those of, for example, the Centers for Disease Control in the in the USA. So uh, one of the points that we're making in the editorial is that this organization is, is perhaps under, now that it's been going three years, it, it's now become more obvious that this organization is um, under-resourced and perhaps it should be looking at how it could extend its remit. And their health priorities for Europe? Well, the ECDC was set up, uh, I suppose the impetus to set it up came in the wake of the SARS outbreak in 2003 because that was a um, worldwide epidemic of a, a fairly um, of a, an acute and um, a very serious and quite lethal disease. There was some concern that the European Union really wasn't set up to deal with that sort of cross-border outbreak. So there was an impetus to have a coordinating centre to help Europe coordinate its approach to a future similar outbreak. However, there are diseases which affect us all the time, such as hospital-acquired infections, which perhaps would benefit from the attention that an organisation like the ECDC can give to them. Um, so again, in this editorial, we're really asking what role the ECDC has in dealing with these everyday infections and whether it should have a much more prominent role. Now, let's move on to the acute sinusitis review. It's by Falagas et al. and it's a meta-analysis comparing antibiotics with placebo for acute sinusitis treatment. Can you outline for us what sinusitis is and the current treatment methods? Well, sinusitis is a congestion, uh, acute facial pain, headache, 
which follows in, in the acute form, follows in the wake usually of a upper respiratory infection, a cold. The controversy over treatment is whether it needs to be treated with antibiotics at all, because of course the cause of sinusitis is primarily viral. And you can't treat a viral infection with antibiotics. But there are some cases of sinusitis, probably a fairly substantial proportion, where there is a role of bacteria in the ongoing illness. So certainly in some cases, some patients will benefit from antibiotic treatment and they will get better. They'll get better more quickly and their symptoms resolve. But what appears to be happening is that when patients go to their GP with sinusitis, then GPs almost universally prescribe antibiotics. So for the majority of patients... Uh, are probably not benefiting from those antibiotics. And we have to question whether there's uh, an overall benefit from society for the use of antibiotics uh, in a, a fundamentally viral disease. Now, this study reported in TLID is a meta-analysis of 17 double-blind placebo-controlled RCTs, mainly from the US and European countries. What are the primary outcome measures of the study and outline for us what the findings were? The outcome measure that they've looked at is cure of improvement of symptoms, comparing antibiotic with placebo. And what the meta-analysis finds is that patients do benefit significantly. It's, it's a small effect, but it's a significant effect um, of antibiotics. So they do get better with antibiotics. They're more likely to get better than they are with placebo. However, there was an e there's an equally significant risk of adverse events. No, those adverse events are, are fairly minor. The bigger adverse event, which we have to consider, is what effect on antibiotic development of antibiotic resistance that the overuse of antibiotics might have. So you've got a patient with what is fundamentally a self-limiting infection who will almost certainly get better with or without the antibiotics. This study shows that the antibiotics makes them better quicker. But on the other hand, you have to consider what effect on the potential for development of resistant organisms and some minor individual side effects are having. So what the authors are concluding is that there is no overwhelming evidence for the use of antibiotics to treat sinusitis when you consider the benefits against the possible adverse events. And now the final paper that we're looking at today is another review. It's on heterosexual infectivity of HIV-1. It's a report by Powers et al. and a systematic review and meta-analysis. What's the current understanding of heterosexual infectivity and how is the value of infectivity expressed? Well, the number that's normally given of the likelihood of becoming infected for any uh, heterosexual contact is one transmission of HIV per thousand contacts. What the authors have looked at here is how different factors, how different uh, intercurrent diseases can affect that transmissibility of the virus. And they've gathered together data in a meta-analysis and uh, looked how uh, different conditions which the patients may be suffering from at the same time as they're HIV infected can affect transmissibility of the virus. And what factors are thought to influence heterosexual infectiousness and susceptibility? Well, it can be things such as whether the uh, man is circumcised or uncircumcised, whether either of the partners has uh, genital ulcer disease, at what stage of infection the partner with who is HIV infected, what stage of AIDS they're at, and uh, even roots of sexual intercourse. These can all affect the likelihood of the virus being transmitted. And how did the study go about 
investigating and quantifying transmission cofactors and what were the main findings? Well, the findings that um, the, the number of one transmission per, per thousand contacts is far too general. And that if you look at factors, if you bring in factors such as whether the male partner is circumcised or uncircumcised, then the number changes quite a lot. So, for example, if you compare uncircumcised with circumcised, then the transmissibility per thousand contacts goes up to eight, from 1 to, to 8.1. So that's a, a fairly considerable increase. If you look at whether one of the partners has got genital ulcer disease, for example, then the transmissibility goes up from the figure which I keep repeating of 1 to 6. So again, a fairly substantial and perhaps clinically significant change. Yeah, these cofactors seem fairly straightforward in terms of incorporating them. It's surprising that they haven't been incorporated into previous calculations. It is, and I think the, the real issue here is what do you do with this information?